This week on The Futurists, Yanis Varoufakis. The concept of the liberal individual has gone. Now we train machine to train us, to train the machine to train us, to train the machine, to input desires into our heads that are in the interest of somebody who collects rent from capitalists who produce using wage labor that which the machine that we have trained to train us to train it, to train us to want it. Hey there, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, and my co-host Brett King is Zooming in hey. Saudi Arabia. Hi, Brett. Good no, I'm in you. Dubai today, but oh. I, I, I had meetings with the Saudis today. So Just ping-ponging around the Gulf region. Yeah. Okay, so this is a show I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, our guest today wears many hats. Uh, he is a person with a long track record of success in a bunch of different fields all of them informed by his expertise in economics. Our guest today is Yanis Varoufakis. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Futurists. And Yanis, today we want to get your perspective on the economy, on global uh, exchange, and the future, the future of labor, the future of economics, the future of money. So great and, to have you. Uh, of course, we want to Thank talk about your new book. Yeah, that's true. We have a, you have well, a number. You've written so many good books. Uh, we'll get into the books for sure. But, you know, Brett and I were saying, can you please tell us a little bit about your your career? Because we find it so interesting. You were in the game industry and then you became the finance minister of Greece. How did that happen? Well, a series of historical accidents, like most lives. Uh, but mine started uh, uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, I initially wanted to study mathematics and economics, a joint degree. But um, after a couple of weeks of economics, I was bored with it. I thought it was second-rate mathematics. So why not study first-rate mathematics? So I switched to maths. And I thought that I had made a very clean getaway from economics uh, because my master's was in mathematical statistics as well. No background in economics, except, of course, that I, as a political animal, I always read political economy uh, for my own purposes and outside the university. Uh, and then when I was um, looking into a thesis to write for my master's, I completely accidentally, that's why I'm talking about a series of accidents um, or errors, uh, I, it was late night, I was at the University Library at the University of Birmingham in England, and I went to the wrong floor. Instead of going to the floor where I usually went to check out the various academic journals and statistics and mathematics, I went to the to, to, to the next floor where economics was, and I, it was sort of half, half dark and very badly lit library in the, in the middle of the night. And I picked up what I, I thought was a statistical journal, and it was the American Economic Review. And I had a look at it, and I got really very annoyed with what I was reading. So I decided to rebuttal to the article that I happened to chance upon, completely by accident. And that became my thesis for my master's. And then, because it did quite well as an academic paper, um, I started getting offers from economics departments. And it then became an economics PhD. Um, and then I started teaching the thing, <laughs> the thing being economics, um, while learning it uh, from a critical perspective. So I ended up with a career as an economist, uh, but a fifth columnist, really, somebody who entered the profession because I was so peeved by the, you know, what passed as scientific uh, knowledge. Uh, and um, 
I got very interested in the grandiose claims of something called game theory. You may have heard of John Nash, mm-hmm. the mind, a brilliant movie, uh, John von Neumann. Um, brilliant people who had uh, put a lot of mathematics and intellect and effort into creating a theory of everything, because that's what game theory presents itself in, as a theory that um, captures the rationality behind our interactions. And if you think of everything that we do in life, uh, you know, from the way we decide what to wear in the morning when we get out of the house to, you know, playing the stock exchange or um, uh, having a debate like, uh, as we are having now, everything is an interaction. So a theory that claims to have the key to all interactions is a theory of everything social, at least social, not natural, but social. So I th- I was very intrigued by that. I was completely unconvinced by that. So I spent 30 years of my life working on game theory, which has nothing to do with games. <laughs> It's got to do with right. interactions. Um, so, so my my passage to the world of video games, well, that was that was another accident, and it didn't last long. But I learned a lot, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and it was during that time when I um, when I was getting very incensed as well. I mean, you see, being angry and annoyed is a major driving force in what I do. Uh, with uh, the inane handling of the inevitable 2008 financial crisis. Right. Um, and you know, that was the first time in my academic career that I started writing about practical things, about things that mattered to people. Before that, uh, you know, I spent decades um, really having fun with abstract notions that nobody cared about and nobody had any reason to care about. But it was only when I saw that a calamity was coming. Actually, that started back in 2003, 2004, when I began to write... Uh, about macroeconomics and about um, the state of the world, the the actual world, not an imaginary game theoretical world, mathematical world. Uh, so I started opening my mouth and criticizing policy policymakers, especially here in Europe. Uh, that was a very big mistake, as my <laughs> wife keeps saying, uh, because at some point a young politician came to me and said, um, "I agree with everything you, you, you say. I'm going to be prime minister." Two weeks from now, would you like to be my finance minister? So at that point, I thought, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> the hits the road. You talk the talk, now yeah. you got to walk the walk. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. So there's they say. I became the finance minister of the most bankrupt European state um, with um, uh, a single mandate of not taking another credit card to pretend that we were, prote- we were repaying loans that we could never repay. But our creditors didn't want their money back. They just wanted to give us more credit cards for their own very sordid political yeah. and social. Um, and then I ended up writing you know, memoirs of those experiences and so on and so forth. But in the meantime, I kept my eye trained on the way in which capitalism was morphing into something completely different, which I now call techno-feudalism and thus the latest book. Yes, it's we should very... talk about that book for sure. Um, but before we jump into that, you know, talk to us a little bit more about the crisis, the 2008 crisis, because you rejected austerity, right? That was what the international banking community was trying to force on Greece. And your choice was to forego that and to take the, the difficult road of paying down debt without refinancing. Is that right? I don't think there is any sensible person on this planet who would not reject austerity everywhere and anywhere because austerity is a very stupid idea. It never works. It can't work. It has never worked. Uh, because let's define austerity. 
It doesn't mean simply tightening your belt. Because if you and I can't make ends meet by the end of the month, we've got to tighten our belt. Mm-hmm. Because you and I, businesses, families, households, uh, we enjoy a privilege that governments do not. And the privilege we enjoy is the independence of our expenditure from our income. So if 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 I don't go out tonight to a restaurant, I save, you know, 50 bucks. My income is not going to be reduced because I have saved on my expenditure. But if I am the government during a recession, what is a recession? It's a period during which private expenditure is diminishing. And if I, as a result of a panic that my deficit, my government deficit is expanding, which always happens in a recession because during a recession, the tax receipts of a government fall, and at the same time, the expenditures of the government increase, unemployment benefits, social security, to increasingly impecunious people. If that causes panic in the government, says, oh, we need to tighten our belt, like anybody else would, like a, an individual would, a family would, a business would, then what happens is, essentially, in your attempt to, to diminish your, to shrink your deficit by cutting expenditure and increasing taxation in the midst of a recession, the reduction in private expenditure, you add to the diminishing private ex, uh, expenditure, diminishing public expenditure. So the, mm-hmm. the top, the sum of private and public expenditure falls faster. But that sum equals, it's a truth of geometry, as Plato might have said, equals GDP. So what you're doing by cutting your expenditure, by tightening your belt, is you you, you resemble a stupid cat chasing its tail and falling unconscious. It's That's actually intensifying the recession, is what it, it accelerates yeah. it. But by this, growth. Yeah. I, I, I don't want our audience to think that I'm that I believe that I'm smarter than the bankers who were demanding austerity of the Greek people because they knew exactly what they were doing. They never believed the story behind austerity either, that by tightening our belt, we would make ends meet and and our deficit would be cut and our debt would be uh, sort of uh, reined in. They didn't believe that. They want, What they wanted was for themselves to be bailed out. <laughs> so essentially what the Greek government I was criticizing did in 2010 soon after the Wall Street collapse had uh, infected the banking system in Europe with a domino effect that was quite sordid and awful. Um, What they wanted was, they wanted the German state and all the other states, including the Greek state, to bail them out. And the only way they could bail them out when Greece owed something like 200 billion euros or let's say dollars to them, was to convince the German parliament to get all the other Europeans, including the Germans, to lend to the Greek state 200 billion that the Greek state would then give to the bankers, to the German and French bankers primarily. Now, the only way they could convince German politicians to do that, (laughs) they were very keen to give 200 billion to the Greeks, to give to Deutsche Bank, was to tell them that this was out of solidarity for Greece and it would come with huge austerity strings attached. Um, It's effectively a punishment, But it was just... It was just priming the pump for the banks. That's all it was doing, really. That was all. It was a cynical transfer. 
of okay, so uh, giant transfer of public money to to private interests. And yeah. austerity for the Greeks was the moral excuse uh, for supposedly lending solidarity to the Greeks, which was not solidarity to the Greeks. It was solidarity for Deutsche Bank and Societe Generale. So it was a major, major con job uh, against uh, you know the public taxpayers, both in the north of Europe and the south of Europe. And again, rage, rational rage, I would like to add, um, caused me to get involved. Now, since Excellent. that time, since 2008 or 2010, when these events transpired, you've become much more critical of the banking system and of debt in general. And you've written a number of good books on the subject. Uh, tell us a little bit about techno-feudalism, because this is your, your, your latest book and your newest theory. Uh, tell us how that arose from this experience, and, and what should we know about that book? Well, I think you should know is that what should they take away from the book is that we don't live under capitalism anymore. Uh, it used to be the case that there was a clash between socialists and, and pro-capitalists, where you know people from the left, which is where I come from, uh, we used to fantasize that uh, organized labor. Uh, informed by our left-wing theories, would uh, defeat capital and take over. Well, where it happened, it turned out to be a dystopia, like you know, in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And in the rest of the world, it didn't happen. <laughs> Instead, it was us, leftists and organized labor, that were defeated, effectively politically annihilated, uh, and capital triumphed. And here is the delicious irony, which is the book. Capital was so successful, so triumphant, that like a stupid toxic virus, uh, kills off its, the host in which it needs to live. Capital killed capitalism. It, yeah. it mutated to a new form of capital, which I called cloud capital, and it demolished the two pillars that hold up capitalism. The two pillars are markets and profits. Uh, over the last 15 years, especially after the financial crisis and the financial sector collapse and its bailout by the public in 2008. You know, our central banks, the Fed being the the, the first among equals, uh, they printed something like $35 trillion between April 2009 and the end of the pandemic. They printed $35 trillion by which they bailed out the financial sector. Now, the, the hope of the central bankers was that most of that money would be invested into the economy to kickstart it again. It wasn't. Right. The only capitalist who just wealth capture, right? Yeah. I mean, it went straight to the financial system to become bubbles. The only capitalists who invested money, some of that money, were, was big tech. Hmm. Big tech, primarily in the United States, but also to a large extent in China. Uh, and they created this new form of cloud capital. So Amazon.com for me is not a capitalist market. It's it's more of a feudal thief. The moment you enter Amazon.com, you exit capitalism because you enter a thief belonging to one person. Uh, it is erected by means of really fancy capital, you know, digital technologies that are astonishing. But in the end, it operates like a thief. In the sense that Jeff Bezos doesn't produce anything, his capital doesn't produce anything. It is simply a produced means of behavioral modification. It modifies our behavior and the behavior of capitalists who sell stuff on Amazon.com 
Bezos charges anything between 20 and 40% uh, rent to the capitalists who sell stuff on it. You and I are, I call us cloud serfs inside those digital uh, platforms or thieves. We produce or reproduce with our free labor their cloud capital. This is the very first time in the history um, since feudalism, after capitalism took over, where we have people who actually work for free to produce the capital of the capitalists. I call them the cloudalists, the owners of this particular kind of toxic capital, cloud capital, who are the techno-feudal lords. Um, and if you come to think of it, so profit has been replaced by rents, rents that these cloudalists charge, I call it cloud rent, and by central bank money. This is no longer capitalism. It's something far, far worse and far more unstable. The crisis it produces are worse, worse than ever, and much worse than that of capitalism. And also, if you are a liberal, small L liberal or libertarian, you should share my, my leftist indignation at what is going on, because the concept of the liberal individual has gone. Now mm. we train to train us, to train the machine, to train us, to train the machine, to input desires into our heads, that in the interest of somebody who collects rent from capitalists who produce using wage labor, that which the machine that we have trained to train us to train it, to train us to want it, is collecting. That is dystopian. And this is not... Yeah. That's a, it's a this circle. It's a happening. circular system. So that's what the book is about. It's a fascinating book. I've enjoyed reading it very much. There's many topics we want to explore with you there about the duality of nature and the duality of capital and and um, and money and labor, because you present these things in such clear and concise terms. It makes it easy for people to understand them. Um, but I think when you write these topics, when you write about these topics, you're going against mainstream economic theory, are you not? And you're challenging. You're considered to be a kind of an outsider challenge. Particularly Friedman. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the um, uh, you know, the neoconservative movement uh, or the neoliberal movement. How do your theories fit with Where that? Fits. Yeah. I don't believe that anybody who advocates those theories believes in them. Um, neoliberalism is absolutely bunk. Um, it's not new. And it's not liberal. Uh, it is simply um, an ideological cover for the deregulation of the banking system after the Bretton Woods system collapsed. Hmm. It's hmm. not new. To, you know, the, in the 19th century, there was this false belief that um, markets know best, that um, staying away from... Uh, the market system is the best way of ensuring that the market system works best. Well, after the second industrial revolution, especially after the 1920s and the Great Depression, we know that that's not true. Yeah. Uh, so we we return to an article of faith, which uh, nobody truly believes in. Uh, but it's, very, it's functional to the interests of the bankers who needed regulation in order to uh, recycle the surplus value produced around the world. Uh, because after 1971, 72, that was my my first popular book back in 2011. I called it The Global Minotaur. I tried to explain what was going on. How was it that the United States is the only uh, economic bloc empire, you know, super 
powerful country, if you want, in the history of the world, whose hegemonic power increased along with its deficits. Yeah, that doesn't really make much sense if you think about it. You know, the Roman right, Empire, right. Empire, the Spanish Empire collapsed when they went to the red. In the case of the United States, the more into the red the United States gets, the more hegemonic it becomes. Now, why is that the case? That was the question that I was trying to answer back in 2010-11 with that book, uh, <laughs> The Global Minute. And it, it turns out, if you if you look, if you study closely what has been going on, is that uh, Wall Street was recycling the profits of the Germans, of the Japanese, and later the Japanese, uh, the Chinese capitalists, um, through the United States, providing the German, Japanese, and Chinese capitalists the effective demand which was necessary for their factories to keep going. While at the same time, those German, Japanese, and Chinese capitalists sent 70% of their profits to back to the United States to be invested in real estate, in the stock exchange, and primarily in American debt. Yeah. Uh, which is a you set this forth in the, in the book, you, in, in, um, in techno-feudalism, you, you, you set this forth. And we should probably take a moment, uh, maybe after the break, we'll talk a little bit about Bretton Woods, because that seems like a pivotal moment, Nixon's decision to move away from Bretton Woods. Uh, we're coming up on a break right now, so we should probably hold off on that because that might take us a bit of time to cover. But effectively, what you're saying is that there is this enormous pivot in 1971 where we basically pushed this economic system that had reigned since World War II off a cliff and replaced it with something entirely different, something deregulated. Uh, and in some respects, it's almost like a Ponzi scheme where you know if we can keep this flywheel going, we can keep it going forever right. with that. Um, I'm super curious to hear about all that, but Brett, maybe we should take a little break right now and then. Yeah, I agree. We're just going to take a quick break from the futurists here. We are interviewing Yanis Varoufakis and he's talking about his new book, Techno-Feudalism. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. This week, we're interviewing Yanis Varoufakis, who's the author of Techno-Feudalism and a number of other compelling books. Uh, these are economic books, but they're very accessible books. They're very readable books. I've been enjoying Techno-Feudalism. I'm also an enormous fan of this book, Talking to My Daughter About the Economy or How Capitalism Works and How It Fails, because this is the most accessible uh, economics book I've ever read in my entire life. Uh, Giannis, you you uh, you took the care to write it for a child or uh, for a young woman's understanding of the world, basically a gift to say, hey, you're, here's the world you're living in, here's the world you're going into. You seem to be compelled to share that information with people, to say to them, hey, you've been told a story, you've been told a fairy tale, you've been put under a spell, and I'm going to dispel that now. I'm going to tell you how this system really works. And in plain English, you talk about systems of debt, banking, uh, the power of capital, how how labor actually works and how labor has been devalued. 
these are topics that are pretty abstract to people. And candidly, very few people are explaining to individuals uh, today, to, to working people today, how these systems work. What is your motivation for sharing this message? I'm a small D Democrat. I believe in democracy, which means hmm, that everybody should be an expert on economics because everything we do, everything we're told we are capable of doing or everything that we're told is feasible as opposed to infeasible depends on some economic conception of our capacities as a community, as a society, and as individuals. Now, if there were experts on economics, there should be no democracy. If you want to build a bridge, you don't do it democratically because it will be catastrophic. People will die. <laughs> the bridge will collapse. Okay, That's where democracy doesn't work. You can decide democratically to build a bridge, but who builds the bridge is not a question of democracy and how they do it. It's a question of science and engineering. If that were the case, when it comes to, you know, to deciding what is the optimal interest rate or what should you do about income tax or what, and so on and so forth, all the economic, huge economic decisions about, you know, uh, student um, tuition fees and so on, uh, then again, there should be no democracy. There should be the experts uh, who decide what is good for society. Now, if you're a Democrat, you can't believe that there are experts. And that always problematized me. But, you know, the more I studied economics, the more I realized that economists are not experts on the economy. Economists are experts on economics. And the two are wildly different. In physics, if you are the best physicist in the world, you are the person who understands nature better. In economics, no. This is, it took me 30 years to understand that. Economists understand their models, but to solve their models, they have to make assumptions that make their models absolutely irrelevant to really exist capitalism. The only way you can solve an economics model is to make assumptions which distances it, you know, takes it thousands of millions of light years away from capitalism. In other words, it's useless in order to, I remember Kenaro, uh, Kenaro is, you know, one of the greats of, uh, um, you know, standard American mathematical economics, uh, one of the first Nobel Prizes in economics. And I remember he was giving a talk at NYU when I was a very young man in 1991. And I was happy, I was very happy to have managed to go and li to listen to him. It was a very small seminar, about 20 people, because it was so highly abstract, the mathematics that he used that it was very hard to follow. Uh, but I remember he was going from one equation to another, from one, one equation to another. There was that professor from NYU um, who very uh, politely and reverentially said, uh, Professor Aro, I believe that equation 21 suggests, in conjunction with lemma 5b, um, that maybe, you know, we should not be taxing this activity, we should have a lump tax doing something else. Uh, lump sum tax doing something else. And Ken Arrow turns around and says, my dear chap, you are confusing that which is interesting with that which is useful. What I'm doing, <laughs> and if you think that what I'm doing is useful, you, you are a clear and present danger for society. Okay, and, wow. and that, that was Kenneth Harry. So, um, and I believe that's very, very strongly. So the more I study economics, the more I understand that economists have no clue about how the economy works. And indeed, if you look at the economists who made significant contributions to policymaking, 
and who have been a positive force in the world. They did that only after they distanced themselves from their own theories. So I'll give you an example of somebody that I I know him, I consider him to be my friend, is uh, a, a person that I hold in very high esteem, Joseph Stiglitz, hmm? Columbia University's yeah. professor of Nobel laureate. Now, I used to study Stiglitz's work uh, before he was appointed by Bill Clinton as the chief economist of the World Bank. And he was a, a very good mathematical economist, um, one of the more interesting ones. I tell you that those papers of his, which led him to have the to get the Nobel Prize in economics, are utterly useless when it comes to helping the world move forward. Then Bill Clinton appointed him chief economist of the World Bank, and he experienced up close and personally the 1998 Southeast Asian crisis, which was a precursor in many ways of the 2008 right. financial crisis, the Asian Boston. Tiger crisis, yes. the Asian Tiger. And because Joseph Stiglitz is a smart man and a good man with a good conscience, he was aghast at what he saw the IMF and the World Bank doing to countries like Thailand, Indonesia, and primarily South Korea. And he went against them, and he was fired. Ah. And then you have the transformation, the road to Damascus. A new Joseph Stiglitz emerges from that and starts writing books which are full of insights and very useful commentaries on actual economic policy. But I can tell you two things which are, I think, very significant. One, that what he's writing in there has nothing to do with his academic work. The work that he did in order to safeguard or secure for him the Nobel Prize, uh, it's neither here nor there regarding the books that he wrote after the, <laughs> the World Bank experience. And secondly, Joseph Stiglitz would not even get tenure in a Midwest mm. University on the basis of what he wrote after the World Bank. That is, the important things that he wrote would simply not count by a tenure committee as good enough for him to get um, an, an associate professorship, not, let alone a full professorship. And so there's is, a great and, disconnect then between the theoretical... An indictment of our profession. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. Now, so, now Stieglitz yeah. has recently written some uh, papers about hyper-concentration in the U.S. economy in particular, and about the uh, the resurgence of monopolistic behavior or oligopolies. Uh, in, in, and in some respects, that sounds very similar to your thesis as well, uh, that the, 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 the dynamics today seem to lend themselves to uh, one giant company dominating a category or, say, three or four companies uh, as an oligopoly dominating a, a, an industry. And this is true, this is broadly true in the United States. 75% of U.S. industries are, are concentrated in that way. I want to I actually come back to sort of a macro view of that, Yanis, because, um, uh, you know, if you, if you read Piketty today and, and um, you know, even if we go back to Will and Ariel Durant, um, you know, lessons from history in respect to the instability of economies um, that have a very strong middle class, and the fact that historically speaking, um, you know, inequality is is sort of a feature of of human society. Um, you know, um, Durant's they they talked about these you know um, pyramid based systems where the wealth is designed to flow up to the feudal class, and then the fact that the post Second World War U.S. economy was more a diamond shape with a very robust middle class that created incredible growth, but that economy was quite unstable. 
And um, it would seem that, um, you know, we, we, you know, with the collapse of Brenton Woods um, and also then the attack on collective bargaining and trade unions with Thatcher and then Reagan, um, you know, we, we saw a real wage growth stall and, you know, we, ha- we, you know, we then have a real problem with wealth distribution. And now with these technology oligopolies and artificial intelligence coming in to power this, you know, we have the, the potential for this permanent, um, you know, uh, problem with equality because of the ownership of assets of technology that will create this immense wealth with AI and then shifting to something like universal basic income, you know, as, as, as a mechanism. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how does, how, how, do, how do you see um, AI impacting this in terms of this techno-feudalism and, you know, is there anything that can stop it? I'm not that impressed by the whole hula baloo about AI. Not because it's not significant, but because it's already happened. We've had AI now uh, interwoven with this cloud capital for years. All that's happening is accelerating. But this is not new. The reinforcement uh, learning algorithms uh, on which Facebook, Google, TikTok have been running for years now uh, has already changed the world in which we live. So you see, this is my my book. I mean, I know that you are futurists and you won't talk about the future. I'm not very good at talking about the future uh, because the future is happening as we speak. Um, My book is about what has already happened, not about what technology and AI is going to do to us. This is a book about what AI has already done to us, how it has created a new form of capital, which has replaced Don Draper. I use Don Draper from Mad Men as a a proxy for all the smart um, advertisers, marketeers, the people who knew how to convince us that um, we need to buy something that we don't really want. What you call the, the manufacturer of desire in the book. Manufacturer. You see, what has happened with AI and with um, technology, with these algorithms, these um, uh, machine learning-based, reinforcement learning-based algorithms, is that Don Draper has been automated, has been robot- robotized. He's a robot now. And he lives in your in your Apple phone, iPhone. He, he lives in your Android device. He lives on your laptop. Uh, he lives in inside uh, every digital device that you have in your home. Uh, and what he does is he's interfacing between you and this uh, and the owners of this capital. Uh, it does three things simultaneously. It inputs desires into your head that are very efficiently, created as a result of having understood you so well that it gives you advice that is actually good advice. When Spotify tells me what music to listen to, it's always spot on. I want to, I enjoy it. <laughs> when Amazon recommends books to me, I've never had a book that was recommended to me by Amazon that I, that, that, that I said, oh, I shouldn't have read that. It was a waste of time. Now that is a very powerful capacity for somebody like Jeff Bezos to have. Uh, and it, and and that is so. It's Don Draper, that has been made far more efficient, has been automated, 
And, and, and that is the second very important dimension of the, the new functionality. Um, you know, Don Draper in Mad Men uh, created fantastic ads. He showed them to you on posters and television screens. But then you had to go to the shop and buy this, this stuff. Now, the same automated Don Draper convince you, convinces you that you need this latest electric bike, sells you the electric bike, bypassing markets and charging 40% to the manufacturer of the electric bike, who has to use labor that is being driven around um, like a robot on the basis of a wrist held or uh, a, 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 a device which is on the wrist telling them how fast to move and which part of the warehouse or the, the you know, the soap floor to go to. Cloud rolls, I call them. Robotized human beings. Uh, and therefore, you've got this new form of capital which has turbocharged. You, you, you talked about inequality. This is not inequality now. Um, they have everything. And the rest of nothing. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. it's okay. beyond inequality. <laughs> it, 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 it's become a, a cartoon version of inequality. Um, we, you know, yeah. with uh, Scrooge McDuck having uh, essentially swimming in, his, his notes. Swimming, yeah, swimming exactly. in all those cloud rents that they collect. Yeah. But uh, taking taking back to the broader historical picture, look, capitalism had a very slow start. When Adam Smith was writing in the late 18th century, there was hardly any capitalism. He was uh, writing about something that was extremely localized. When Marx was writing about globalization in the Communist Manifesto, you know, the first three pages of the Communist Manifesto is a celebration of globalization 100 years before it happened. It hadn't mm. even happened yet. These people were very prescient. It was the second industrial revolution with electromagnetism magnetism, which uh, created the Thomas Edisons and the Westinghouses and the Henry Fords and, you know, the, the the massive increase in the size of business. So you had big business and big finance to finance it going together. Right, they the had rubber 15, barons, yeah. They had 15 years of the Gilded Age, the 1920s, and that crashed in Berlin in 1929. And then you have, after the New Deal, and especially the war economy, uh, what uh, John Kenneth Galbraith described as technostructure, which is um, a very interesting form of capitalism, where essentially you've got central planning and you've got a professional class, which is um, through revolving doors, toing and froing between private monopolies and government, uh, with Don Draper manufacturing desire along the lines of the manufacture of particular products for which desire needs to be manufactured because there wouldn't be effective demand for it. But what was interesting about the Bretton Woods system was it was the New Deal writ large. Essentially, the Roosevelt administration spread the New Deal and the war economy and the technostructure to Europe and Japan. That's what Bretton Woods was. And it they did this by prioritizing industry, highly concentrated industry, American industry, American-led industry, on condition of effectively putting the financial genie in its bottle with strict capital controls. I mean, banking became boring. There was nothing that the bankers could do. They couldn't shift money around. They couldn't bet. They had uh, all the, 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 you know, the, the constraints, the shackles of the New Deal to deal with. 
Uh, and that system produced the golden era of capitalism, the 1950s and 60s. Mm, you know, right. Quality bread shrunk massively, massively. It's the yeah, damage. Exactly. But very had, strong, robust middle class growth. You had uh, growth, consumption, low inflation, yeah. falling inequality. Yes, we had in the, we had, we had racism and we had uh, segregation and we had the Vietnam War and we had fascist dictatorships that the CIA was creating left, right, and center, including my country. Uh, but from an economic point of view and a social point of view, that was a golden era of capitalism. However, it couldn't last. And it couldn't last, not because it was a Ponzi scheme. It wasn't a Ponzi scheme. It was simply predicated upon the axiom that America, the United States of America, would be in surplus. Because the whole point of the fixed exchange rate regime was that Europe and Japan were dollarized. So essentially, the, the United States were producing our currencies. I, mean, I grew up throughout my childhood and teenage years, um, I never had to check the exchange rate between the Greek drachma and the American dollar because it was the same day in, day out for years. <laughs> it was a fixed exchange rate. But that could only last as long as America had a trade surplus with Europe and Japan. Because when it did, it dollarized us. You guys dollarized us. You sent us money either in the form of direct grants, like in the Marshall Aid, or loans. Then you sold us a Boeing jet or a Cadillac, let's say, right? And you took your dollars back. Right. And that was sustainable. But only as long as you had a surplus with us. But that stopped being the case around 1968. Right. And then it was an attempt to use debt to keep the gravy train going. Well, they did very successfully. So, the, the, so the, the same people who actually um, kept the Bretton Woods system going, uh, and there were some very interesting guys involved in that. You know, do you remember Paul Volcker? Yeah, he, he was a New Dealer, and uh, his first job in the Nixon administration, even though he was a Democrat, he worked for the Nixon administration, um, uh, as did John Connolly who was a mate of um, Lyndon Johnson and a Texan Democrat who moved over to the Nixon administration. These Democrats who had moved over to the Nixon administration were the the ones who engineered the end of Bretton Woods, of the system that they loved and nurtured for all those years. Why? Because they were smart. They knew that it couldn't continue as long as, as long as, from the moment that America went into the red. From, from black to red <laughs> in its account, current account, um, uh, accounting books. But with the end of Bretton Woods, we went into this new system that we've had since the 70s uh, where every, rates are fluctuating. Everything is freely uh, freely floating. And for some countries, yeah, that created a crisis, right? The important thing is to understand why, Robert, because um, it, it, the, the, there was this amazing exchange between uh, Henry Kissinger, who left us very recently, and Paul Volcker. When Henry Kissinger was uh, uh, at the National Security Council, before he became um, Secretary of State, when he was still in national security, uh, he asked the pertinent question. From a Kissinger perspective, it's a typical question. And the question was, now that we're in deficit, how can we maintain our hegemony? 
And Paul Volcker had a fantastic answer, which is the whole period between the 1970s and 2008. Paul Volcker said, well, we'll make other people pay for our deficits. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so to do that, they blew up Bretton Woods. They yeah. devalued the dollar. Okay. Yanis, uh, um, uh, I mean, whereby the profits of the foreign capitalists were recycled through Wall Street. Mm. But that system yeah. blew up in 2008. And since then, we have the new system, which I call techno feudalism. Yeah. Well, where do you see this idea. heading? Like, where will we go with techno feudalism? Yeah. How do you project this out five years? 20, 50 years, even. Look, I hope that everything I'm going to say now is wrong because it's not good news. <laughs> and, you know, we economists have a very good track record for getting it wrong. So I'm very, very hopeful that I'm wrong. But here it is anyway. Two are my great worries. One is the collapse of the social contract within our countries. You can see it in the United States happening now. Yes. Yeah. It's a product of this. Trump is a direct product of this. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same thing here in, in Europe. The shift to the ultra right, to xenophobia, to nativism. Mm -hmm. uh, democracy is impossible under techno feudalism. We, we don't even have the means to communicate with one another anymore. Because algorithms uh, create cloud rents for their owners by poisoning our discussions, our conversations. Uh, beyond that, from a macroeconomic perspective, when 30 or 40% of value added is uh, creamed off by effectively feudalists like Bezos, who are not producing anything who are creaming it off both wage labor and capitalists. And that money is dis disappears from the circular flow of income, which mm. forces the Fed right. to print more money or to maintain a very, very large um, uh, book of assets. Yanis, sorry to interrupt you, but the, the, the question that I think people are wondering right now then is, um, at least technologists always try to come up with a new technological solution to the problem. And when you have central banks printing money um, and inflation, that's an argument for a cryptocurrency that is by design the hardest currency on the planet. You're famously critical of cryptocurrency. I think you've said they're idiotic. Tell us about your, your thinking about cryptocurrency as a fix for this problem. Anybody who thinks that the problem of money can be solved through technology simply doesn't understand money. It's really very simple. It's not a technological problem. Um, <laughs> essentially, the, the Bitcoin story. By the way, I find Bitcoin very interesting, and I mm -hmm. find blockchain very interesting. Um, back then, in 2008, 2009, I think it was 2009, I was interviewed by Wired Magazine, and I was asked what I thought of it. I thought it's a fantastic solution to a problem we have not discovered yet. It's much more like the gaming uh, ecosystems mm -hmm. that you, you learned of in Valve, you know, with Gabe Newell on that. Though. Um, well, I wish. I mean, it's not even that. Look, the, the problem that Bitcoin has is exactly the same as the problem that the gold standard had before 1929. The idea that you can connect, connect, um, make the quantity of money uh, apolitical, that you can remove the question of how much money should there be in the economy from the political sphere and uh, either do it through 
linking the quantity of money with the quantity of gold, which you cannot manipulate because there's only so much gold on earth or under the earth. Or to do it through code, through blockchain. This idea neglects the very basic function of money. Right. Uh, so, so let me give you a simple example. But you know, you don't need me to tell you, but anyway, for the benefit of our audience, when the pandemic hit, if the government or the Fed, the political system, could not generate large quantities of money to replace the private money that was lost as a result of the deep recession and the lockdown, what would have happened? We would have simply gone, <laughs> we would have something far worse than the Great Depression. So the idea that you solve the money problem technologically by making its supply exogenous is the most dangerous error the human brain can concoct. Hmm. Okay, well, it's created speculation, right? So, yeah. So, so right. let me offer this. Here's another technological solution to an economic problem. Um, as, uh, as artificial intelligence begins to take on human-like qualities and is able to displace human labor... Many people in the technology feel strongly that um, we need to have some sort of uh, universal income, a universal basic income for the displaced workers. Personally, I'm confused about how that would work, but we've had this discussion several times on the show, and I'd be yeah. curious to get your perspective on universal yeah. basic. Yeah, me too. Well, it's a tricky subject, but let me be brief on this. I'm in favor of a universal basic income, but not one that is uh, financed through taxation. There's no way you can convince a blue-collar worker in the Midwest, sitting tired after a whole day's work on their city, to tell them that, you know, I'm going to tax you in order to give the money to somebody who's not working. Mm -hmm. If you do that, this is political suicide, and it's also wrong. But if my hypothesis in techno-feudalism is right, that we are all cloud serfs, we are all producing the capital of Bezos and Zuckerberg and all the others, and Musk and Tesla and so on, simply by driving our cars around. We are producing directly with our labor or our activities, their capital, and we get no dividends for them. Well, right. in that case, huh, imagine a situation where you force the large corporations around the world to deposit 20% of their shares in a social equity fund from which the dividends that accumulate are dispersed around society on the basis of a universal basic dividend uh, because we're all producing mm. capital, but we're not getting any of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that's not taxation. That is a completely different thing. Uh, but that would require confiscating a, a big chunk of the private equity of those companies. Well, they are confiscating our capital. We produce capital for them, yeah. and they're not. Okay, yeah. so that's good. And that's they're a confiscating our labor, and yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we are taking back that which they are not paying for, which we have yes. used. Yes. Amen. Uh, and uh, and more uh, and but that's that's that that I think is part of the solution, but it's not the solution. It's part of the solution. The other part of the solution has to do with who owns the algorithms, uh, because that those property rights are if they are so unevenly distributed as they are now, mm. they lead to two things. Firstly, constant stagnation and social breakdown on the one hand, and Perhaps a new world war between the two techno-feudalisms that are emerging, one in the United States, the other in China. Because China is the only country that has produced cloud capital 
that these uh, quantitatively significant and in opposition to American cloud capital. And this is why we have a new Cold War. going on. nothing to do with Taiwan, nothing to do with Ukraine, and nothing to do with spying. It's got to do with this major clash between te two techno-feudal systems. The, the I think there's, there's one other aspect to this, if I can jump in, Rob, is that, yes, um, you know, the, the more automation we put into society, the bigger the question becomes as to what is the purpose of the economy? Because if we're creating growth and it's and it's not being in the, the wealth distribution isn't occurring, you get like you have in the United States where you get degradation in education and healthcare and all of these things um, because of this uh, distribution problem. So it's this is why I argued in, in my book, Technosocialism, that ultimately with high levels of automation, we must come to the view that the economy must serve the needs of the citizenry first and foremost. And that's the sort of yeah. shift so the in the we have to think about the mechanics. I want, I, I want robot slaves to be doing all the drudgery and all the chores. Dangerous, and the dirty work. Yeah, exactly. The question is who owns the technology? Because if it's owned by the 0.01%, right. then we have to. And me being a Trekkie, a fanatical Star Trek fan, <laughs> the answer is Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, well, that's a good, that's a great note to finish on, hey. Yeah, this has been a great conversation, Yanis. Uh, you, you brought up property rights, and I'm 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 tempted to go down the rabbit hole with you and talk about property rights <laughs> and the mythology of intellectual property, um, but unfortunately, we don't have enough time to do that. Perhaps we can, we do, can it do it again. That the next future. time. Yanis, yeah. where can people find out more about you? I know you've got a website. Are you also publishing articles? Um, and and where can we find your book? Uh, my book, I think, is going to come out everywhere in the United States. Uh, it's published by Melville House uh, and distributed through Random House in the United States, uh, Penguin in Britain. Uh, my articles, if you can find my articles, all to, I have a column which is actually contains a lot of my thinking uh, in Project Syndicate. So if you go into Project Syndicate, you'll find my column there. Great. Super. Well, Yanis Varoufakis, it's been a great pleasure to have you on The Futurist. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely this week. And Brett, thank you for joining us. I'm happy you could do it from your travels. Um, big thanks to Kevin Hirshhorn and Lisbeth Severance and the crew of Provoke Media that make our show possible. And also a big shout out to our fans and followers and friends. Uh, your listenership, your, the audience we're growing. This is what we all depend on. We're here to serve you. We're thrilled to get the kind of feedback that we get from you on social media. Uh, so please keep telling Phenomenal us about the shows content. that you like. Give us the questions and the hosts, the guests that you want to have on the show. And uh, each week we will bring another futurist or future-minded thinker to the show. And we'll be back again next week. And until then, we will see you, Brett. In the future. <laughs> Great. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.